Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, December 14th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. It's Mo Shwanunu. I'm back. He's back. And I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And for this week, Jill has been the one reading all the news <laughs> and reading between the lines so you don't have to. Though, Jill, I promise I'm back. I'm alive. Some of you in the premium audience will know I was talking to you guys on Instagram uh, yesterday, but the uh, whole family got COVID for Hanukkah, one of the gifts this year. On the third night of Hanukkah. <laughs> yes. No, actually, literally, Jill, on the third night of Hanukkah, I felt the worst. <laughs> but now that we're on the eighth night of Hanukkah today, I'm actually uh, feeling much better. Uh, for those curious, the, I think the new variant going around is JN1. So Matt, that may have been the one we got. Who knows? Throat, congestion, and actually a pretty significant fever for a little bit. But the, honestly, the scariest thing was not me, Jill. It was as a first-time father having our first baby get sick for the first time. So that, you know, it turns out it's been reinforced to us that I'm the more freaked out parent among the two parents. Alex was totally <laughs> calm. And I'm like trying to check her temperature every hour. And she's like, you need to, you need to chill, dude. And thankfully the little one, you know, kids are so resilient. Like from peak COVID to like ready to be normal again in like less than 36 hours. So very thankful and grateful for that this holiday season. Well, I'm glad that you guys are all feeling better. And I missed you on the podcast. So I'm glad that you're back and ready to talk some news because as usual, there is a lot going on. What have I missed? Uh, well, <laughs> Jill, Jill, I've been sad not to be able to partake in a number of conversations that you had to have with yourself this week, including <laughs> yes. what was it? Young people wanting Botox and fillers in their teens. I saw that story on Sunday and I was like, yeah. all right, I'm going to wait for Mosh. All right, I'm going to wait for Mosh. <laughs> and I'm like, I got to do it. I have to yeah. do it. This story is it's just going to be too old. I got to do it myself. I understand. I lost my privileges. It's okay. <laughs> I'll blame COVID. I'm back. All right, so let's get to some headlines here. It was on the verge of being a total failure, but the COP28 climate conference eked out a deal that some say is historic. Others say not so much. Hunter Biden defies House Republicans' subpoena and says whatever they want to know, they're going to have to ask him publicly, which is kind of a reversal of what we usually hear, where people usually want things to be behind closed doors. And it comes, Jill, as uh, impeachment talk continues to heat up. Abortion issues back in front of the Supreme Court, this time related to medical abortion. In business news, the Fed wrapped up its meeting and says it is not going to be raising interest rates. And Mosh, the bigger news, some rate cuts could be on the way. Like gravity, Jill. Everything that goes up must come down. What Democratic insiders are saying about the raft of polls that show Joe Biden is in pretty dire straits when it comes to reelection. Americans have tipping fatigue. But what does that mean for the holiday season? And a new alcoholic beverage, courtesy of Doritos. Jill, are you going to try this one? I feel like I have heartburn just thinking about it. <laughs> and most you'll have on this day in history. Thank you for taking this off my hands. Jill, well done these past few days. I know it's not your favorite segment to handle, but you handled it very well. Coming up today, the uh, first person to make it to the South Pole, but more significantly, the person who was second to the South Pole. I'll tell you that person's unfortunate story, Jill. 
All right, let's start with politics. The House formally authorizing the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Republicans rallied together despite concerns among some in the party that the investigation has not produced evidence of misconduct by the president. The official inquiry very well may not lead to an actual impeachment. GOP members say it will just help them gain access to more information. The months-long investigation has centered around the business dealings of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Republicans say they are investigating whether, during his time as vice president, Joe Biden took a bribe, abused his power, engaged in other forms of misconduct, or obstructed the investigation. Democrats think this is all just retribution for former President Trump's two impeachments, which they insist were for much more legitimate issues during his time as the actual president, January 6th, and connecting aid to Ukraine with investigating a political opponent. So in case you thought we did this already in terms of President Biden and the impeachment inquiry, Kevin McCarthy, if you remember when he was speaker, he did open an impeachment inquiry on his own in September, opting against a formal vote. Well, now the probe is entering the next phase, which includes working to execute subpoenas and land high profile witnesses. The new speaker, Mike Johnson, held the vote to put more legal weight behind the inquiry. Members say they've obtained testimony that Joe Biden occasionally met with his son's business associates, but they have not supported claims that he profited from his family's business overseas. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, highlighted three payments totaling about $4,000 in 2018 to Joe Biden from a Hunter Biden business account that also held money from Chinese business interests. Hunter says he was just repaying his dad for buying him a Ford F-150. Jill, I didn't know I shared anything in common with Hunter. My dad bought me a Ford F-150. (laughs) It's what I used to drive in high school. I believe it is the most popular pickup truck in America, Moshe. I think it's the most popular vehicle in America, Jill. Don't mess with the F-150. Hunter joined the board of a Ukrainian gas company, Burisma, in 2014, around the time that his then vice president father was helping to conduct foreign policy with Ukraine. Republicans have said that it may have been a conflict of interest, but they did not present evidence that it influenced U.S. policies. Yeah, so this investigation has been going on, Jill, for almost six years now. Uh, Notably, you mentioned the 2018 $4,000 that he says was for an F-150, but came from the same bank account he got Chinese money from. That happened in 2018 after Biden was vice president. At that time, he was just a private citizen about to run for president again. So again, there seems to be a lot of smoke here, but no fire. The Republicans haven't identified specific things here. And that's something you hear from moderate Republicans in the party who are not quite ready to pull the trigger on a Biden impeachment here, despite the fact that you probably have the majority of House Republicans ready to impeach Biden for a variety of things. Now, Republican leaders, uh, you mentioned Kevin McCarthy and the new leadership, they've refrained for months from calling a vote to open an impeachment inquiry, given the reservations from some of the more moderate Republicans, many of them in purple districts, where voters there would not look kindly upon an impeachment for no reason or an impeachment for light reasons. But the ground has shifted here. Most are now willing to support an inquiry, but still emphasize they're not willing to charge the president. This is a whole process. There's going to be an inquiry. They're going to vote on the inquiry. Then it goes back to the committee and they potentially will come back with charges. Then the House has to vote on those charges. Republicans right now with McCarthy gone, Santos gone, you know, you're looking at a three uh, vote edge. So basically they would need to be completely in lockstep, nearly all of them, to impeach Joe Biden. 
And so this all comes as they continue to look into Hunter Biden, his son's overseas business dealings, and any inappropriate or unethical or potentially illegal relationship he had with his father when his father was then vice president. Hunter, it turns out, was on Capitol Hill yesterday. He was subpoenaed to appear before the House Oversight Committee to give a deposition and answer their questions. He showed up but said, I will not enter that room and have you shut the door. I will testify publicly. And so that is as far as that went. So he showed up. They said, no, 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 this is a closed door briefing. We're not doing this publicly. He said, no, thanks. Went outside, found the cameras, said the following. No matter how many times it is debunked, they continue to insist that my father's support of Ukraine against Russia is the result of a non-existent bribe. They displayed naked photos of me during an oversight hearing. And they have taken the light of my dad's love, the light of my dad's love for me and presented it as darkness. They have no shame. So you hear Hunter there. He went on for a while. He said repeatedly his father was not involved in the business. Now, we have found out that Biden would get on conference calls with the business associates to just kind of say hello, grease the wheels, if you will. But again, no linkage there, no money then appearing in Joe Biden's account. At least that has not been proven thus far from the multiple Republican investigations that continue here. So there is a truth somewhere in between Republicans, you know, basically saying that, you know, the vice president, now the president did a whole bunch of unethical things here. The Biden saying he did nothing at all. It appears, again, Pop would uh, show up. Hunter would say he would have access to his father. But there's been no proven link to Biden, the dad, actually doing anything about it. So sort of just money making for Hunter so far. Is that impeachable? That'll be the big question Republicans will have to answer in the coming months here. Now, as far as the testimony, public versus private, uh, Hunter said, I only want to talk out in the open. I don't want parts of my testimony selectively leaked. I want to be open in front of the cameras uh, because I have nothing to hide here. Now, Comer and the Republicans have argued that a public hearing where each congressperson has five minutes divided among Democrats and Republicans is insufficient. They need a legal counsel methodically going through numerous questions as you would do in a deposition. So they believe that a public hearing doesn't help them. A hunter believes a public hearing is the only way he wants to do it. So that's where that is. But by the way, you know, Hunter has other issues here, legal issues. He's facing nine tax charges for not paying more than a million dollars in taxes over the course of a number of years. He has since repaid that, but he's facing charges on that front. And then he also has those uh, firearms charges lying on a gun application saying he wasn't on drugs when he was on drugs when he bought a weapon back in 2018. All right, Mo, switching gears, another climate summit has come and gone. And this time it was the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. A few days ago, I reported that it was on the verge of ending in what some climate activists like Al Gore said was a total failure. In the end, nations agreed to a deal that has the world transitioning away from all fossil fuels for the first time. It is the so-called UAE consensus. The results did fall way short of the specific phase out of fossil fuels that most countries wanted with a date certain. Instead, the agreement calls on countries to, quote, contribute to global efforts to reduce carbon pollution in ways that they see fit, offering several options, one of which is transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050. So sort of like a New Year's resolution, Jill, the world has committed to, quote, contribute to a bunch of cuts 
And so now the world depends on all the countries following through with an effort to contribute to that. So basically, the world needs an accountability coach. <laughs> they, need, they need Teddy from The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. The world's about to hit the gym for a couple of weeks next year. We'll see how long it lasts. OK, so the president of the summit, which was sponsored by the UN, was the UAE's Sultan Al-Jabbar. And he said, together, we have confronted the realities and sent the world in the right direction Al Jaber happens to be the CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And before the summit even started, the New York Times reported that the Emirates was using its position as host of the summit to pursue a contradictory goal, which was to lobby on oil and gas deals around the world. Despite criticism from climate activists, he was able to bring the oil and gas industry into the COP process and there were more representatives of fossil fuel companies than at any previous summit. So I guess that's the silver lining here, the way to, to look at this as a positive. Either way, some countries are applauding the deal as a step in the right direction. And it also includes agreements to triple renewable power and double the rate of efficiency gains by the end of the decade. Yeah, the general consensus here, Jill, is that the world is moving in the right direction. If you look at um, the amount of CO2 being emitted, the question is, are they moving in the right direction fast enough to head off some of the consequences of what's already out there in the atmosphere and what is possible over the course of the coming decades uh, by the end of this century? The deal does come as we've just experienced the hottest year on record. That's even before the year is done. We know that. Uh, and by the way, next year could be another year because, again, we have climate change impacts as well as El Nino continuing that has led to massive droughts, wildfires, record temps, and just totally wacky weather around the world over the course of the last year. So what happens now post the summit is what matters. It depends on investors, consumers, national governments, companies. Uh, for example, two years ago in Glasgow, countries at that COP summit pledged to phase down coal. Again, big goal. We're going to phase down coal. But since then, consumption has actually continued to rise, and the world remains very unlikely to limit warming to the one and a half degree mark that uh, everyone's goal has been. The idea being that if the Earth's temperature goes up more than one and a half degree centigrade above pre-industrial levels in the 1860s, that will then trigger wider impacts, more drastic impacts, worse impacts of climate change. Right now, with the current commitments, it does not appear we will stay under that one and a half degree mark. You know, the big issue here is, of course, enforcement mechanisms. If a country doesn't abide by stuff, what are you going to do? Are you going to sanction them? You know, sort of everyone's looking at each other being like, what are you going to do? Now, island nations are most concerned about this because of rising oceans. They're the ones who are ridiculing this deal, saying it does not go far enough. In fact, some of them said these oil companies and oil countries sort of agreed to this deal way too quickly. They didn't cause too much of a fuss when this draft language came out. So are there too many loopholes in this? The Europeans also a little disappointed here. Uh, the Indians, the Chinese uh, oil producing companies, etc. say we need more time. Don't create new rules for us. And so this is sort of the difficulty with coming to an agreement that nearly 200 countries around the world need to abide by. Another thing that was discussed this time, a loss and damage fund that developed countries pay to less developed countries. It turns out that the impacts of climate change are impacting countries that haven't really contributed to the problem as much as the developed countries, you know, the US, the Europeans, etc. So there are now $700 million in a fund uh, to help those frontline nations impact climate change. The issue is $700 million. While it sounds like a lot, 
The problem is the developing countries actually need upwards of $400 billion with a B to address the impacts of climate crisis. So a lot of big numbers here, Jill. One other thing, a number I saw from Politico, the cost for nations to adopt some of these commitments, upwards of $30 trillion. Um, Now, when you look globally, that actually isn't that significant a sum. But of course, that requires the countries to pay that amount of money to transition their economies. And that's always difficult. Now, climate uh, advocates and scientists will say, you know, the costs of climate change are actually going to be far more expensive than that. There's a Deloitte study that just came out that the cost alone to the U.S. economy over the course of the next decade could be upwards of $15 trillion by the impact of climate change. We're talking about extreme weather events, uh, lack of productivity during heat, agriculture that isn't growing, a, a whole variety of things that we might see. And so... You know, when we talk about cost here, do you basically pay the money up front to deal with the climate change or do you not deal with it and then pay the money on the backside as, you know, the climate changes and you have to adjust? Well, that seems to be the way humans operate, right? (laughs) We deal with it after, (laughs) even though it's going to cost a lot more money. Exactly. Consider this our um, credit card debt, Jill. We're just stacking it up. We're not going to pay it right now because we want to use our money for other stuff right now, Jill even though the interest is increasing. All right, we have a lot more to get to in today's Speed Read. But first, a word from one of our new sponsors here, Factor Meals. As we're all running around trying to get things done before the end of the year, uh, we're loving right now the ready-to-eat meal delivery service, Factor, that helps you eat well, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved meals delivered straight to your door. Jill, we've been uh, talking about these for a few weeks now. I've been loving the options, loving the taste, and loving the simplicity here. Uh, they save me a lot of time, and they're delicious. There's the, also the cold-pressed juices that they send, the pasta dishes, a whole variety of things. Of course, they save you all the meal prep, the grocery shopping, the chopping, the cleaning, um, etc. They're ready in just under two minutes. Throw them in the micro. And uh, honestly, the micro, I like that. We're not even not saying the micro. <laughs> I was trying to save time there, Joe, but now we took longer. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not your grandparents' frozen meals. They taste delicious. They're uh, fresh. When they come, you put them straight in the fridge. Uh, you have a few days to eat them. So right now, we've partnered with Factor Meals, uh, offering a special deal right now, 50% off. Head to Factor Meals dot com slash mo news 50 that is factor f-a-c-t-o-r meals dot com slash mo news 50 to get 50 percent off you definitely won't regret it all right and if you are a longtime listener you know we have been drinking ag1 for about a year now here over at the podcast especially as a mom of two young kids i could use all of the help i could get when it comes to nutrition and just my energy level AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement. It supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. AG1 is continuously refining their formula to create smarter, better ways to elevate your baseline health. It's tested for 950 contaminants. It's NSF certified for sport, formulated on the latest science and maintains the highest quality standards. I take AG1 in the morning and I know I am covered for the day regardless of what else I eat. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews. Check it out. All right, time now for the speed read from the Washington Post. The Supreme Court will decide this term whether to limit access to a key abortion drug. 
returning the polarizing issue of reproductive rights to the high court for the first time since the court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. The Biden administration and the manufacturer of Mifepristone have asked the justices to overturn a lower court ruling that would make it more difficult to obtain the medication. It is part of a two-drug regimen used in more than half of all abortions in the United States. Oral arguments will likely be scheduled for the spring with a decision by the end of June. This will further elevate the issue of abortion, which so far has benefited Democrats during the 2024 campaign season. So we should note here that full access to mifepristone is not at stake, but it's ease of access here. And it includes access in states where abortion is legal. It could also have implications for the regulatory authority for the FDA, which approved the pill back in 2000. Now, there was one of these cases that started in Texas a while back that asked courts to throw out FDA approval altogether for mifepristone. As it's winded its way through the system, the case is now more about ease of access, as I mentioned. There have been a number of changes made in the last few years, allowing the drug to be taken later in pregnancy, to be mailed directly to patients, and to be prescribed by a medical professional other than a doctor. So the court will be focusing on some later FDA actions from 2016 onward, including a 2021 decision that made it available by mail, which was finalized earlier this year. Also under review are decisions to extend the window in which mifepristone can be used from seven weeks to 10 weeks gestation, as well as reduce the number of in-person visits that a patient needs to get mifepristone from three visits to one visit. Jill, we should also note that the drug is used for miscarriages as well. So a lot of people have been watching this case very closely. As far as the uh, abortion angle here, medications to terminate pregnancy, which can be taken at home, have increased in importance over the last 18 months since the Supreme Court made its Dobbs decision on Roe v. Wade overturning that ruling last year. More than a dozen states have severely limited or banned abortions uh, since that ruling last year. And what was interesting is the Supreme Court actually, when it made that ruling, was like, we're done with dealing with abortion here. It's a state issue. And now the Supreme Court's like, oh, the issue is back up here again, at least a version of the issue. So um, notable that they took this case, but there were a lot of different courts saying different things. And that's what the Supreme Court does is they try to resolve it when uh, the various appellate courts and district courts around the country can't agree on an issue. So we're going to be hearing this case this spring, and this will be one of the big decisions, Jill, that we always await in those last two weeks of June when they roll out the uh, big ones and see what they have to say. But again, not full approval for the drug, but again, access to the drug, ease of access. From CNBC, the Federal Reserve held its key interest rates steady for the third straight time and set the table for multiple cuts to come in 2024 and 2025. With inflation easing, policymakers voted unanimously to keep that benchmark overnight borrowing rate in a targeted range between 5.25% and 5.5%. Along with the decision to stay on hold, committee members penciled in at least three rate cuts in 2024. Markets had widely anticipated the decision to stay put, which could end a cycle that has seen 11 rate hikes, pushing the Fed funds rate to its highest level in more than 22 years. Following the release of the decision, the Dow jumped more than 300 points and closed at a record high on Wednesday. Jill, they call it the Santa Claus rally at the end of the year. And it looks like uh, the market is uh, very pumped about this, as well as some other economic indications that they're getting. Because, as you mentioned, it appears we're done with increasing interest rates. 
that they have achieved the soft landing on inflation that they had hoped. I don't know how they did it, Mosh, <laughs> but they made it work. <laughs> well, you know, we we on this podcast often talk about how, you know, so many decisions get messed up, right? In this case, they actually pulled off the landing here that we thought was very difficult. Fingers crossed, at least that's what Wall Street is betting on right now with the uh, record close. And so right now, the projection is that interest rates will drop, as you mentioned, a couple times next year, and then expect four more rate cuts in 2025, three more reductions in 2026. I mean, they really kind of do an outlook here, multiple quarters, multiple years. That would then get the Fed funds rate back down to 2 to 2.25% from where it is right now, which is 5, um, which would be pretty significant. Obviously, that has an impact on the 30-year mortgage rate, on auto loans, on credit cards, on a whole bunch of factors that are very important to our lives. The Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying inflation has eased from its highs, and this has come without a significant increase in unemployment. That is very good news. Now, we all know what the price increases are like. We're all experiencing them. Inflation is still at 3.2%. So while inflation has come down, inflation is still bringing prices up, right? Prices will continue to go up. You don't want deflation because that means the economy is collapsing. So healthy inflation numbers are 2%. That's the target. They're at 3% right now. But they're feeling good. The projections are interest rates will come down, Jill. So let's hope that has an impact for all of us as uh, you know we make big purchases in the coming years. All right, our next speed read comes to us from Puck News. We've mentioned their coverage before on the Instagram account here on the pod. A lot of smart newsletters over at Puck, deeper dives on politics, media, international affairs, culture, Hollywood. It's one of the places we here at Mo News turn to for in-depth coverage for the inside scoop. And right now we're partnering with Puck on a subscription deal, which we'll have more on in a second. But first, to the speed read, friend of the pod, Peter Hamby has a piece over in Puck News on all these poll numbers showing that Biden is trailing badly against Trump and what people are saying about it. So Peter writes another week, another series of dreadful polls for Joe Biden. The latest round started over the weekend with a Wall Street Journal poll showing Biden's approval rating at just 37 percent, a new low. And Donald Trump beating him by four points next year in a hypothetical rematch that few voters actually want. The poll also showed Biden losing to Trump on a range of issues, inflation, crime, border security, the war in Gaza, with Trump outrunning the president on the economy by a devastating 18 points. Today, less than 30 percent of Americans have a positive view of Bidenomics. Democrats were then met with more aneurysm inducing data on Monday. A pair of polls from CNN showed Biden losing to Trump in Georgia and Michigan to key swing states. Emerson College has Biden losing to Trump and by even more with outsider candidates like RFK Jr. in the mix. And more bad news for Joe. A Monmouth poll shows Trump's 2020 supporters are more motivated to stick with him next year than Biden's supporters are. Yeah, Peter's been on the beat of uh, disenchanted Democrats for a while over there at Puck. So he's been talking to a few insiders uh, in his latest piece, many of them saying the full Biden campaign has to get started already. Uh, State directors, communications people has to be built out uh, because essentially the White House is still not really engaged here. And they need to be making Biden's case, et cetera. So you have a lot of Democrats who are hand-wringing here and freaking out, frankly, about all these poll numbers. Uh, He also talks to folks over at the White House. Biden's team is annoyed that they see Trump coasting to victory in the Republican primary without getting the usual scrutiny that comes with the campaign trail, because basically Trump's doing almost no campaign events, skipping the debate circuit, and looking like he's coasting to the nomination here. 
But the bottom line in the piece is that, you know, if you look at the numbers, most Americans are not tuned in and Democrats believe it'll come down to the choice. When Americans actually tune in after Labor Day next year, when people actually wake up and say, oh, my God, the choice is between Biden and Trump, Democrats believe that uh, the polls right now don't matter because people will vote based on their feeling that even if they don't like both guys, they'll vote based on the issues and the Biden folks believe they win on the issues. Uh, and that includes even the Gen Zers and millennials who are particularly not happy with Biden right now, but that they will come home at the end of the day to Joe Biden. So that's the bottom line in that piece, though he talks to a lot of interesting folks. But again, what's interesting about Puck is they give you a whole variety of newsletters. Uh, they have a lot of good reporters there, Dylan Byers, uh, Julia Iofi, uh, Matt Bellany, who will give you the inside take on a whole variety of things on a variety of topics, make you that smart middle at a dinner party. And so we're partnering with Puck News. We have an exclusive Mo News discount on their subscription right now, 25% off. Um, check it out right now via the link in the show notes over at Puck.News. Check it out right now with the code Mo25, M-O-25. From Axios, many Americans say that they will tip more this holiday season. A new poll asked if people tip housekeepers, teachers, child care providers, landscapers, mail carriers, and trash collectors during the holiday season. It found 23% did not tip last holiday season and do not plan to tip this year either. 44% plan to tip the same amount. And despite recession fears, 15% of Americans will increase how much they tip this holiday season compared to last, which is more than the 13% that said that they are decreasing holiday tips this year. A separate survey by Urban Sitter found that people intend to tip their child care providers about the same this year as last year, which is about 68% of families, 46% give them one week's pay, 28% give them even more. Most surprisingly, the younger generations, Jill, are planning to tip more this year than last. According to a Harris poll, 49% of Gen Zers, one out of two Gen Zers, plan to tip more than last year compared with a third of millennials and one out of five Gen Xers and boomers. However, the story says that the younger group is still confused about tipping etiquette here um, in terms of what to give, how much to give, given that we live in a world where everything is tippable and nothing is tippable. <laughs> We've talked about this on the pod before. A study found that consumers are asked to tip five times a week on average for various services, including potentially getting a bottle of water at a uh, concession stand. I'm not giving a tip for a bottle of water, just for the record. <laughs> Jill just wants to make sure you know that out there. Half of Americans now say that they're fed up with all the tip requests. But despite that, during this holiday season, nearly two out of three Americans say they will give bigger tips here. So yes, everyone, get in the spirit of the holiday season and give people that extra tip to help them make ends meet and buy those gifts this holiday season. Look, no pressure, but there are a lot of people in, in specific jobs that really rely on tips yeah. as kind of part of their yearly pay. When I lived in Manhattan in a doorman building, I spoke to a lot of doormen about it. And, and those tips are a big part of what they count on to make ends meet. Yeah, that's been the unfortunate thing is tipping has gone everywhere is that the people who really need tips to make ends meet are sort of getting the raw end of the deal here because people have developed tip fatigue as tipping has become ubiquitous. And from Fox Business, Doritos is betting that it's nacho cheese flavored liquor is all that and a bag of chips. Yesterday. Oh. <laughs> so Doritos launched a new spirit based off of its nacho cheese flavor. And the company says it tastes just like the real thing. The brand partnered with a Danish company known for making custom spirits with creative flavors. 
A 750 milliliter bottle costs 65 bucks. It went on pre-sale yesterday. It will be available next month online and in select stores in New York and California. Since it is a flavored spirit and not a specific category of liquor, Doritos recommends mixing it with a tequila or mezcal to make a Bloody Mary or a margarita. Jill, I feel like we should do a taste test on the pod and then put the video out for everybody. You don't have to ask me twice, Moshe. <laughs> All right. If you're listening uh, from Doritos or a distributor <laughs> that handles Doritos liquor, we'll give you the address. Though, Jill, this could go one of two ways. This could either be really tasty or it could be the opposite of that. We shall see. Apparently, it has 42% alcohol by volume. And they say in the story, it can be sipped neat or over ice. You know, I'll have a little Doritos liqueur over ice uh, is something they hope you will ask one day. It's made with malted barley and Belgian yeast, which apparently gives us this peppery, spicy flavor. And uh, Doritos here, not the first brand to try to tap into other markets. Kahlua, Absolute Vodka have made fragrances that smell like an espresso martini. I haven't tried the Kahlua cologne, Jill, but I guess people are branching out. Of course, Duncan has turned its iced coffees into canned cocktails. And Arby's, I missed this one, apparently <laughs> turned its curly and crinkle fries into a vodka, as well as created a smoked bourbon to be paired with its roast beef. <laughs> I the totally Arby's <laughs> liqueur to go with its roast beef? I missed this whole thing also. <laughs> let us know. We would have definitely reported this to all of you. If you're an Arby's fan and you've tried this, let us know. Send us a DM. I want to hear more about the Arby's vodka. All right, now time for On This Day in History. Jill, you're off duty for a while on this day. (laughs) On This Day in History, you are no longer on duty to put together On This Day in History. We begin in 1863 when President Lincoln pardoned who else? His wife's half-sister. Mary Lincoln's half-sister and the widow of a Confederate general. This is all part of his plan to reintegrate the South into the Union by giving out some pardons. And now we go to 1911 On This Day, Norwegian explorer... Roald Amundsen, you may have heard his name, he was the first person to reach the South Pole, and he did it on this day in history in 1911. Amundsen would go on to uh, a lot of glory as the first person to hit the South Pole. There was another guy you may not have heard of named Robert Scott, who also set off at the same time to reach the South Pole first. Though the journey wasn't as easy, and he didn't make it there first. He made it there second. His motor sleds broke down. The ponies had to be shot. The dog teams were sent back. Scott and four companions continued on foot, thinking they would still be the first people to hit the South Pole. They would reach the South Pole, only to find that Amundsen preceded them by over a month. A storm later trapped Scott on his way back. His frozen body was found a year later, Jill. You often don't hear this. I mean, these explorers that have to, you know, who try to reach these new heights, reach these unexplored regions, you know, we'll hear the names. We know the famous names of the people who made it there, made it back alive. Poor Robert Scott set off on a journey Never quite made it back, Um, though we should note, interestingly, Amundsen set up, it turns out, 60 miles closer to the South Pole at a different part of the coastline. Um, So he had a shorter route to the South Pole and back. So poor Robert Scott didn't work out for him. And we should note that over the last 112 years, about 350 people have made it to the South Pole since then. Dear movie producers, do not make a movie about that. I don't want to watch it. It's <laughs> depressing. <laughs> not interested. But Jill, we often talk about firsts and like big accomplishments. And But I think it's important sometimes to tell the story of the people who didn't make it. 
All right, fast forward to 1993. On this day in history, in movie history, Philadelphia, starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington, had its world premiere. It was the first major Hollywood film to address the AIDS crisis, Hanks winning an Oscar for his performance. Joe, this is at the height of the uh, AIDS crisis when finally you started to get some recognition of it in TV and movies. And this is a this is a very powerful film. All right, we end here with a bit of music history. On this day in 1959, Motown Records, the first large black-owned music company in America, was founded. On this day in 1968, Marvin Gaye scored his first number one hit with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. One year later, the Jackson 5 made their first TV network appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, performing a couple songs, including I Want You Back. And 10 years later, on this day in 1979, the British punk rock band The Clash released their breakthrough album, London Calling. Jill, we focus today on some oldies but goodies in On This Day in History. I love an oldie but goodie. I love that you're back, Mosh. And I love our audience for sticking with us through. It's been a, a rough couple of weeks. I was sick. Then you were sick. You were away one day. So hopefully we'll continue this streak of Mosh and Jill podcasts back together. We've decided to get our antibodies early in the winter <laughs> season, Jill. So <laughs> we'll keep it strong for the rest of the winter. All right. Thank you guys for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Thanks, everyone. Jill, I'll see you back here tomorrow. I promise. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.